special one because it is the inaugural Hazel and Fulton Chauncey Lecture. Now, as you know from the invitation, this is the first annual lecture in this new series. Hazel and Fulton Chauncey were longtime VHS members who had a special interest in the scholarly work of the society. Their sons, Edwin Hall and Warren Fulton Chauncey, established this lecture series as a way to encourage that same appreciation for history and history education in others, particularly in young people. Warren Chauncey, good friend of the VHS, brought the idea to us in November of 2010, and we immediately jumped on it. You see, Warren very narrowly constricted the definition for this, for this lecture. He said, well, it has to be on some aspect of Civil War history or Virginia history or Southern history. <laughs> and we you know, sort of thought for a moment and then said, you know, I think we can probably work within those parameters somehow. Um, so we're just delighted that he brought this idea to us. Now, unfortunately, Warren's brother Edwin passed away in February of this year as we were planning this first lecture. But I am very pleased that his widow Barbara is with us tonight, and I would ask her and Warren to stand for a show of our appreciation for their dedication to history and the vision to establish the Chauncey Lecture. And I have to say to both of you, I'm especially grateful because this is the first new lecture program that has been launched on my watch here at the VHS. So it holds a very special place for me. So thank you both very much. Now, I know there are also some others who have contributed to this fund in the audience to the Chauncey Lecture Series. And you may have noticed that on the invitation. There is an opportunity to help endow this. Um, your contributions, especially your tribute gifts for Edwin, have made this possible. So I would also um, ask those who have given to the fund to stand up and also be recognized. If you have given to the fund, thank you. Okay, our inaugural Chauncey Lecturer. The first clash between ironclad ships at the Battle of Hampton Roads in March 1862 marked one of those rare pivotal moments that changed naval warfare forever. The USS Monitor and the CSS Virginia fought to a draw, but their engagement reverberated throughout the navies of the world. Historian John V. Quarstein has researched this topic deeply. Already the author of several volumes about the Battle of the Ironclads, he has now published The Monitor Boys, the crew of the Union's first ironclad. His lecture tonight will draw on years of research to present the first comprehensive picture of the lives of the officers and crew who served in an iron ship unlike any vessel previously known. John Corstein is an award-winning historian, preservationist, and author. He presently serves as historian for the city of Hampton. He previously worked as the director of the Virginia War Museum and as consultant to the Mariner's Museum's Monitor Center. He has also served as an adjunct professor at William & Mary, University of Virginia and VCU, and in his spare time, which from the above credits seems highly unlikely that he has much, he is an avid duck hunter, and he has ducks on his tie, I noticed tonight. So. John is the author of 10 books, including Fort Monroe, The Key to the South, and A History of Ironclads, The Power of Iron Over Wood. He has also produced, narrated, and written several PBS documentaries. 
including Jamestown Foundations of Freedom and Hampton from the Sea to the Stars. His books are available in our museum shop, and he will be happy to sign them for you after the lecture. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to John Corstein, who will give the inaugural Hazel and Fulton Chauncey lecture, The Battle of the Ironclads. <clears throat> Spring 1862 was a dark time for the Confederacy with defeats along the North Carolina Sounds, the Mississippi Valley, and a huge army was posed up in Washington, D.C., ready to strike against Richmond. However, around midday on March 8, 1862, out of the Elizabeth River will come the CSS Virginia, and on that day she will prove the power of iron over wood and change the fortunes of the war in Virginia. The story is a story that really is about people, about technology, about men in iron ships, actually iron men in iron ships. And it all begins when the war breaks out. And you know, when... The Civil War breaks out, I have to tell you that you know, the United States Navy had not really kept up with some of the technological changes that had occurred in Europe as a result of the Crimean War. All sorts of technology has been changing in the 19th century. Number one, we have from sail to steam. No longer do we rely on sail power, but steam power, which meant ships were more mobile and better able to fight against forts and so forth. However, I have to tell you that there is the development of from solid shot to explosive shell. An explosive shell, you know, when you fire a solid shot at a wooden ship, sometimes, like the old iron size, it bounced off. Sometimes it went right through the vessel. It's kind of like a bowling ball, right? Explosive shell, however, would tear a ragged side in a wooden ship, sending shrapnel and sparks. And as you all know, sparks and wooden ships are not good. So as a result of that, there's a battle known as the Battle of Sinope uh, in 1853, where a Russian fleet of eight ships with shell guns take on 16 Turkish ships and destroy them all in a matter of hours. This is tremendous. Everyone takes note, and the French and the English will develop what are called iron-cased floating batteries, and they prove that those iron-cased batteries can reduce forts. The Europeans start building, uh, actually, ironclads. The French are first with what is called Le Glore, which is actually looks just like a frigate, except it's got iron on its side. The, the British are going to build what is known as the warrior class, which is a all-iron-hulled vessel, and but it's under construction when the Civil War begins. United States had ignored all those things, and we had developed what we called the screw propeller frigate class, which is known as the Merrimack class. And the Merrimack class is... Uh, Basically, uh, 302 feet in length, it's, uh, they have sails, but also steam power, and generally anywhere from 42 to 47 guns. They're all batteries are um, alike. In other words, all the guns would be the same calibers, in this case, 9-inch Dahlgrens, with two pivot guns uh, that uh, would have, be of larger uh, caliber 12-inch shell guns. 
So these are powerful ships. However, uh, they uh, do not work but so well in this age of modern warfare. In fact, the Merrimack, when she is launched in 1857, will be called a novel example of naval architecture. However, she has problems from the very beginning. Uh, she has a very sheer hull, so she rolls greatly while she's uh, sailing. And of course, if you're a gun platform and you're rolling a lot, you know, it's not very good. Uh, her engines are so bad that that she can only barely get in and out of port with them. And in fact, their engines will be condemned in 1858. They're repaired. But again, in February of 1860, the Merrimack is condemned and sent to Gosport Navy Yard up the Elizabeth River near Portsmouth, Virginia, right across the harbor from Norfolk. And there she'll rot. Well, I have to tell you, uh, Gosport has, uh, Gosport is the leading Navy Yard in the United States. Uh, it has 14 vessels there in mothball, or ordinary as they would call it then. And when war clouds come to the nation, Gosport is something that the Southerns really want to have, especially when on April 17, 1861, Virginia leaves the Union. And immediately, Southern patriots, led by Brigadier General William Booth Tolliver, will go down to Gosport and demand the surrender of Gosport Navy Yard. Now, I got to tell you, the commander of Gosport Navy Yard at the time is a man known as Charles Stuart McCauley. He is 67 years old. He's been in the U.S. Navy for 55 years. Uh, some people say he's gotten a little too old for service, but everyone just agrees that he drinks too much. Well, uh, the bottom line is he gets orders from the Secretary of Navy that you must do everything you can to defend the honor of the nation. You must do everything you can to defend the yard. You must do everything you can to get the Merrimack ready for sea. You must do all these things but do nothing to anger the Virginians. I leave it all to your discretion. Uh, a drunk and a discretion, I think, is a little mixed up. But uh, nevertheless, uh, he will lose his nerve. And on April 20th, he will set the yard on fire. And this is a tremendous blaze. However, it's a botched job. They do not blow up the granite dry dock, the foundry. Although they burn the ship houses, they had old wooden sailing warships in them. Uh, furthermore, uh, they set afire all the ships in the harbor except the venerable USF United States. But when they set the Merrimack on fire, they also pull her seacocks. So the big question is, how well does a burning ship burn when it sinks? <laughs> well... In the ashes of the Navy Yard, the Confederacy is going to find the wherewithal to build an Iron Navy. Their Secretary of Navy, Stephen Russell Mallory, is a roly-poly guy from Florida, actually Key West, Florida, formerly a senator from Florida. He was head of the Navy or the Senate Committee on the Conduct of Naval Affairs. And I have to tell you, uh, he knew all about what the Europeans were doing. And so when he realizes that the South has Gosport, he says, we must build a ship that has been heretofore never seen in naval service. We must build an ironclad, we must give it iron uh, rifled cannon, and we must produce these at home while we try to buy them overseas. 
Well, he calls on this one man, John Mercer Brooke, the inventor of the bathosphere, a student of Matthew Fontaine Mari, and Brooke will come up with this concept of having submerged ends and a casemate um, that would be um, protected by, uh, basically, eventually the Merrimack will have uh, well, the Merrimack has it's converted into the Virginia. It doesn't come into the Virginia till a certain date, so I'll call it the Merrimack for right now. It has 24 inches of oak, pine, and oak and pine, and then it has two layers of two-inch iron plate. And within that casemate, they're going to have 10 cannon, and those 10 cannon are going to include two 7-inch Brook guns, two 6.4 Brook guns, and six... Nine-inch Dahlgren guns. This is a powerful vessel, and those dog, two of those Dahlgren guns, has been specially fitted to fire hot shot. And I want to tell you, when you read naval manuals about hot shot, they just love the stuff. And uh, you know, usually it's fired from a fort against a navy ship, but they all figured on the the Virginia that they could, you know, use it. But they used to skip that hot shot so that it would come up into the vessel and you know sit into the side and set the vessel on fire. And it's real delicate how you fire one of those guns. You can well imagine because you got gunpowder, but. It's an amazing little uh, thing. And so the Virginia is made to sink wooden warships. And the big thing is, is that um, they also realize that the Virginia or the Confederacy at this time doesn't have a lot of gunpowder. So what are they going to do? Well, uh, they come up with the ideal to put a cast iron ram on the front of the Virginia. And the reason why they do that is because they figure that if we're shotproof, we can run around ramming ships. And the last time they rammed ships or tried to ram ships was in 1571 at the Battle of Lepanto, where the Turks were trying to ram the Christian ships and Don Juan of Austria had cannon and he just kind of blew them out of the water. So, uh, uh, you know, wooden ships and cannons don't work well. And uh, so the big thing is, is that this vessel is designed to sink wooden warships. Now, you know, during the Civil War, um, news travels about people building this and that. Uh, I mean, the Lynchburg Virginian puts an article that we in Gosport are building a whole fleet of iron case ships. The Federals kind of pay attention to this, you know, and they'll start building their own ironclad program. And we'll get back to that in just a moment. But this is a naval race that is rushing to see who can get the first ironclads into the water that can be effective. Well, the Virginia, uh, you know, there are not a lot of sailors in the Confederacy. And so by January of 1862, they're starting to try and recruit. Actually, the man in charge of recruitment is John Taylor Wood, uh, grandson of Zachary Taylor, nephew by marriage uh, to Jefferson Davis. And, you know, basically, uh, John Taylor Wood has to go to all these army units and, and just, you know, are you a boatman? What boatmen are there? And, I mean, they're getting the dregs of society in some ways because he picked certain men, and then when they showed up, it was not the same men. You know, the officers are all trying to get rid of their malcontents. But it's... Uh, <laughs> But when the North Carolina squadron is defeated after the Battle of Patasquank Creek, um, they actually see that uh, about 90 men come up from that. 
They actually have four veterans of the Royal Navy that are on the CSS Virginia, including Charles Hasker, uh, who becomes uh, boatswain, um, and uh, several others that were in the U.S. Navy. Uh, about 160 of the crew had prior naval service. Their officers were some of the finest, whether it's Catesby App Roger Jones, uh, who was a outstanding uh, gunnery officer who worked under Matthew Fontaine Mari, uh, and also John Dahlgren, and uh, also Charles Carroll Sims. But the real man that's going to make a difference is going to be the commander of the Virginia. And I want to tell you his name is Franklin Buchanan. And Franklin Buchanan was born in Baltimore on September 17, 1800. His father was uh, a founder of the Maryland Medical Society. His grandfather was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he will join the Navy at age 15. And by um, 1842, he becomes captain. He becomes the first commandant of the United States Naval Academy. He is also... Uh, a hero during the Mexican War. He's with um, Perry when he goes to Japan. And when Matthew Perry goes to Japan, Buchanan is his flag captain. And actually, Buchanan is the first American officer to step foot on Japanese soil. And I want to tell you, when they're steaming, he's in command of the Susquehanna, which is a paddle-wheeled vessel. And, you know, uh, paddle wheels are not very good. I'll get into that in just a moment. But, uh, and when he's getting into Edo Bay, uh, which is Tokyo Bay today, uh, the, the Chinese pilot runs the ship aground. And Buchanan, who's five foot ten, hawk-nosed, really fierce, they said he was the beau idea of a naval officer. No man tread a quarterdeck uh, with, since Nelson that has greater courage. Well, he looked across at the Chinese pilot with such a fierce look that the pilot jumped overboard rather than have the wrath of Buchanan. Well, I do have to tell you that, um, you know, Buchanan takes command of the vessel, and he wants to rush it into battle right away. Uh, by March 6th, they got their final uh, shipment of gunpowder. They also get their final uh, volunteers to come on board, which en masse... Captain John Kevill of the United Artillery, which was stationed at Fort Norfolk, volunteered to go on board the Virginia, and they'll man two guns. Um, the Marines that are on there, led by Captain Reuben Tom, uh, who was a veteran of the Mexican War, a former uh, militiaman, a former U.S. Marine, who had joined, or actually is the first officer of the Confederate Marines down in Mobile Bay, he will uh, uh, organize the Marine detachment and also command a gun in the battle. Well, I have to tell you that Buchanan is itching to get out. However, a terrible gale blows through Hampton Roads on the evening of March 6th. It's terrible on March 7th. However, on March 8th, it's a beautiful day in Hampton Roads. Not a ripple on the water, not a cloud in the sky. And Buchanan decides that is the day he will take his ship on a shakedown cruise. And that's what he tells everyone, all right? And so he pulls away from the quay at uh, Gosport, and the crowds are rushing down along the riverbank, cheering and huzzahing. Some of them, however, just wanted to see that thing go through the water. You know, the bottom line is, you get a piece of wood and throw it on the water, what does it do? And when you throw a piece of iron on the water, what does it do? 
sink. And so they're shouting things like, go on with your metallic coffin. You'll never amount to a thing. Well, the big thing is, is that the Virginia will pull away from the dock and head down the Elizabeth River. And after going eight miles, uh, she will slow for a moment. Buchanan calls his men onto the gun deck, and he tells them, men, today we will do our duty. Not just our duty, but more than our duty. And he will point out to Hampton Roads where there are five major Union wooden warships. At Newport News Point, there's the 24-gun sailing sloop of war Cumberland. Also, there's the 52-gun sailing frigate the Congress. Off of Fort Monroe is the 42-gun steam screw frigate the Roanoke, the 47-gun steam screw frigate the Minnesota, and the 50-gun sailing frigate the St. Lawrence. Over 200 cannon on all those ships. Buchanan tells his men, see those ships? Those ships must be taken. Some of you all have complained I have not taken you close to the enemy. I will take you there now. To your cannons, to your death, we will sink before surrender. And you can imagine the crew. What? You know? This is supposed to be a shakedown cruise, you know? Actually, uh, Dinwiddie Phillips, the surgeon, comes up to Buchanan and says, Captain Buchanan, how can we attack the Union fleet today? Our ship is untried. And Buchanan merely said, you know, if we sink the Federal fleet, we know our ship is a success. If they sink us, we are indeed a failure. And with that, they steam into Hampton Roads. It's a Saturday. It's wash day. You know, all the undies of the sailors are all hanging from the riggings, and they are the, the, one of the lookouts uh, on the Minnesota calls down to the officer of the deck, Sir, I think you should take a glass and look over, thing, over there, because I think that thing is a coming, right? And into Hampton Roads it comes. One officer describes it as a floating barn roof with a chimney belching smoke. However, Harry Rayner of the little gunboat Zouave says that she looked like a half-submerged crocodile intent on evil. Well, the Virginia took an hour and a half to get all the way from the mouth of Elizabeth River over to Newport News Point. Even on bad days in the tunnel down there, you do faster. So, you know, she's, she, she, you know uh, one of their crew members said that with each stroke of the engine, we didn't know if we were going to move forward, stop dead in the water, or turn turtle. Uh, John Taylor Wood said she was as manageable as a waterlogged log. Um, so anyway, this is her shakedown cruise. She heads to Newport News Point. She passes the Congress. The Congress fires a broadside at her. The shot bounce off the side of the Virginia like pebbles thrown against a brick wall. Actually, the, um, one of the gun crews uh, will duck and Charles Carroll Sims says, look, I've taken shot in open air greater than that. Have no fear. They fire a salvo of four shots back. Hot shot rumbles and shells rumble through the side of the Congress, creating fires. And soon the ship is, has brain, blood, and bone flowing from her scuppers. But Buchanan doesn't stop. He continues towards the one ship he thinks can damage his, and that happens to be the Cumberland. The Cumberland purportedly had a 70-pounder rifled cannon on board, and so he heads right towards her. The Cumberland is sitting there with her broadside facing her. They're shooting at the Virginia, but nothing stops. You know, it's like peas fired from a pop gun. The Virginia will then ram the Cumberland in her starboard forward quarter, creating a hole large enough for a horse, to, a horse and cart to go through. 
Oh my gosh, the Cumberland, the crash could be heard. Actually, Robert Dabney Minor will run down the gun deck shouting, our cleaver has cut her open. But down in the engine room, E.A. Jack, third assistant engineer, will say, you know, I felt our ship rattle when we hit the enemy's vessel, but then I felt our ship take on a dangerous tilt. That's right, the Virginia got stuck because they ordered the engines in reverse and they didn't go into reverse, right? And so all of a sudden the Virginia is starting to go down, however, swell comes, breaking off her ram, and the Virginia floats away. And for the next half hour, this is some of the fiercest naval combat. The Cumberland, despite sinking, will continue firing its broadsides at the Virginia, actually blowing off two muzzles of her cannon, cracking some brakes. Her funnel is so perforated with shot that a flock of crows, Dinwiddie Phillips said, could have flown through it. Uh, in fact, you know, the sides of the Virginia have been coated with what's called ship's grease, with this tallow and pig fat. And of course, with explosive shells blowing up on side of it, uh, you have it starting to crackle. And so one uh, man, John Hunt, turns to his friend Jack Cronin and says, don't it smell like hell? And, uh, and the other one said, yes, and we'll soon be there. You know, the sulfur, the uh, coal smoke, and that bacon, right, you know? And, but after a half hour, the Cumberland shudders and begins to sink below the waves as her commander, Lieutenant George Upham Morris, will shout to his crew, give her a broadside, boys, before we go. And the Cumberland will sink, defeated yet defiant with her flag flying. Well, I want to tell you, you know, the Congress knows she's in trouble, and she has run herself aground to get out of the way. The Virginia takes a half hour to turn around as she comes back down towards the... Congress, she sinks three transports on the, uh, along the wharfs there at Newport News Point where there's Camp Butler. Then she'll come up to the Congress. She'll shell her for a half hour. And of course, uh, she is defeated and she'll strike her colors when her commander, Lieutenant Joseph Smith, dies. Well, I have to tell you that this is just unbelievable. Buchanan is out on top of the gun deck of the Virginia. He's a happy guy. He sank one ship. He's capturing another one. He orders these two tugs, the Raleigh and Beaufort, to go alongside the um, uh, Congress to take its surrender, pull it off if she's worth it, or burn her where she is. Now, I have to tell you, the Beaufort had actually fired a shot up into Camp Butler and that had gone through the headquarters of the commander of Camp Butler, a man known as Brigadier General Joseph King Fenno Mansfield, who was a graduate of West Point class of 1821, and he was not happy with being showered with splinters. And so when he sees all this going on, he tells his men to fire on the Congress. And one of his uh, subordinates said, we can't. They're under a flag of truce. And Mansfield says, I haven't surrendered, have I? Well, they start shooting at the Confederate gunboats, and Buchanan sees this. He's enraged. He orders a Marine to give him a musket, and he begins shooting at the Union soldiers on the shore about 150 yards away. What do you think they do? Shoot back, of course. And they shoot Buchanan in the hip, grievously wounded. He's taken below and onto the gun deck. He says, men, do not worry. The wound is not mortal. I will soon be back amongst you. And then he turns to Catesby Jones and says, sink that damn Union vessel. Fill her full of hot shot till she glows. He gives that order knowing his brother, Thomas McKean Buchanan, is on board. Well, 
the Virginia then comes back into Hampton Roads after setting the Congress on fire, but the tide is going out. So uh, darkness is coming. So they go back to Sewell's Point, determined to finish the job on the next day. But I have to tell you, as the Congress sets an eerie glow across Hampton Roads, into the harbor that night will come the Monitor. And the Monitor is, of course, one of the most unusual vessels ever seen before. In fact, one person, uh, James Rochelle, will say, a sailor's eyes never saw anything like it. Um, and actually, it's the brainchild of John Erickson, who um, wasn't a popular guy with the U.S. Navy because of this incident known as the Princeton, which um, is a long story, which I can't tell you that much about, but a 13-inch Shell gun blows up on the deck of the ship. Everything was designed by Erickson except for that gun, and he gets blamed for it, you know. And, and actually, Secretary of State gets killed. Secretary of Navy gets killed. I mean, there's, it's, it's pretty bad. They're all drinking champagne and firing guns, you know, in the uh, Potomac. Uh, that's where John Tyler met uh, Julia Gardner Tyler also. Um, and so nevertheless... Erickson is a pariah with the U.S. Navy, and the U.S. Navy wants to have designs, and this one man known as uh, Charles Bushnell uh, has this design of the ship called the Galena. Uh, he's a financier, and he goes into in front of the ironclad board, and they say, hey, you know, tell, we don't think this ship is stable. You're going to have to explain it to us. Bushnell says, I don't know, you know. <laughs> I'm just a businessman. I'll go find out. When he goes back and he, uh, they say, you, the guy that's going to tell you is this crazy guy over in Brooklyn known as John Erickson, a Swedish-American engineer. So he goes, sees him, and Erickson says, yeah, 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 you know, this is what you can do. But then he pulls out of his closet this cardboard model of this unique ship, an 18-inch freeboard. Everything on the ship is under the waterline. The only thing above is a revolving turret and a pilot house. Which now goes, oh my gosh. He takes it down the ironclad board. They look at it. What is this? And he said, this is the brainchild of John Erickson. They go, wow, that's terrible. And it just so happens that Lincoln walks into the room, because Bushnell had some pull, and uh, uh, walks in the room and looks at the model and says, you know, it kind of reminds me of a country girl. When she first puts her foot in a silk stocking and decries there's really something in it. And so the big thing is they all pay attention. They tell Bush, no, we don't like it, but if you can answer these questions, um, we might give you the contract. He goes up to New York. Uh, he sees uh, Erickson. He says, hey, look, they love you. They love your plan. You just need to go down and explain it for them. And so Erickson, day later, goes down, and he walks into the ironclad boardroom, and they all, what are you doing here? He said, I thought you liked my model. And they go, no, we hate it, we hate you. And he launched into the soliloquy that described what that vessel could do, and they give him the contract. Well, the monitor will take a little over 100 days to build. And when I say it's a submarine world, I am not kidding. Um, everybody lives below the waterline. This is the first time in the naval warfare where, you know, actually William Keeler, the acting assistant 
paymaster will talk about being in his little snuggery, his little cabin, and that he has these little lights that they can open up. They have iron plates on top. They take it off when they're not going to go into battle. And uh, it's glass, and, and you can get light coming in. But he said, sometimes when the seas were a little heavier, I could see the water come across and watch the fish swim, you know? So uh, this is um, unbelievable. Now, the crew of the Monitor will they'll volunteer, they'll go on board two receiving ships, the Sabine and the um, North Carolina, and they have Swedes, they have Danes, they have uh, Irishmen, Englishmen, Welshmen. You see there are a lot of fights on board. Um, they have uh, just a wide mixture of people. Um, George Gear talks about, I never saw so many tattoos in my life. Now, and he's, uh, uh, it's kind of amazing, uh, but uh, they actually uh, have have two African-Americans on board, uh, that one will be the servant to William Keeler, and the other one will be a clerk. And uh, they are uh, um, on board the initial cruise of the Monitor. Now, the Monitor is going to be commanded by John Loomer Warden, uh, an ordnance expert who was the first POW of the Civil War. Uh, he went down to Pensacola on a special mission from Florida leaves the Union. He's done his mission. He decides to go back. He says, I'm going to take the train. Everyone says, don't do that. Um, but he goes, well, don't wear your uniform. He says, I got to. It's the only thing I got. And so he, of course, gets arrested. And uh, as a result of that, he's a POW. He's just been released. And he says he's willing to be an agent to prove the monitor in action. Well, there are 57 men on board, and they actually have one person who's not a member of the crew, Albin Steimers, who actually is a chief engineer in the U.S. Navy, and he's there to kind of pay attention to make sure this ship works because it's got two 11-inch Dahlgren guns, it's got a revolving turret, and it's got this side lever engine that's never been seen before so that it could fit right into the special area. So... Nevertheless, the ship will leave New York on March 6th. Get that. So as she comes down, that gale that had been in Hampton Roads, guess what it is? It hits the monitor. Now, when you, it's, the monitor's being towed by the ship called the Seth Lowe. Now, I have to tell you that, um, you know, when you have an 18-inch freeboard and 30-foot seas, it's really not a good thing. And the monitor starts taking on water, more water and more water. She's got all sorts of pump systems. However, as the water starts rising in the engine room, it puts out the fire so the pumps don't work. The ship is floundering. Sam, Worden is seasick. Uh, Samuel Dana Green puts his men to bucket brigades as he tries to frantically signal the Sethlo to bring her inshore so she could be saved. And actually she was. The monitor somehow arrives at the Virginia Capes at around 5 o'clock on March 8th. She hears the booming of the guns over near Newport News Point. She sees all these transports rushing out of Hampton Roads, as Worden says, like a flock of chickens chased by a fox. Well, into Hampton Roads she'll come. She'll pull up next to the Minnesota, excuse me, the Roanoke, where the acting commander of the squadron in Hampton Roads is, John Marsden. And uh, actually, Marsden says, look, I've got orders to send you to Washington, but right here is where you're needed. So go and protect the Minnesota. The Minnesota had run aground, and she was really stuck. And so as a result of that, the monitor goes there. Now, the monitor is about nine feet off the water's edge, okay? 
The Minnesota is about 45 feet above the water's edge, okay? So you can imagine Worden get on top of the turret hailing the captain of the Minnesota, a man known as Captain Jacques Henry uh, Van Brunt, and uh, he uh, looks down at the monitor and says, what are you? And uh, Worden says, I'm the monitor, I'm here to protect you. And Van Brunt says, well, look, I don't know what you'll do tomorrow. But when that thing comes, I will fight my ship and I'll sink before surrender. And Worden says, I will protect you. The next morning at 6.30, the Virginia builds up steam and the men have a breakfast of two boiled eggs and two jiggers of whiskey. Um, and uh, uh, so, but fog is on Hampton Roads and so they're delayed to coming into the harbor until 8.30. KTPF Roger Jones is acting commander, and he heads right for the Minnesota. He doesn't know the ram is broken off. However, he knows that all he has to do is get within about 50 yards to 100 yards of that vessel, and it will be destroyed. But they see this odd thing next to it, like it's a barge, in fact. Uh, uh, but, you know, Jones knows what it is because Jones got a copy of the Scientific American magazine. And the January 1862 edition printed the plans of the Monitor. And uh, uh, so, you know, uh, you know he, that's Erickson's battery, you know? And uh, uh, so, it's, you know, I gotta tell you, New York Times says, Monitor launched today, you know? Uh, and of course, there are Confederate agents up there and they're sending uh, messages down south, just like uh, during the building of the Virginia, um, Mary Lavestri, a slave who sends information over to Fort or to Fort Monroe, and all sorts of information just going back and forth. Uh, but no one knows really what these ships can do. So the Virginia moves towards the Minnesota, and this tin can on a shingle, this cheese box on a raft, pulls away from the Minnesota and fires at the Virginia. And for the next four and a half hours the first battle of ironclads will occur. I want to tell you, this battle is fought in concentric circles because the Virginia is trying to get at the Minnesota and the Monitor is trying to keep it away. The Virginia's got a lot of problems, 22-foot draft, speed of five knots, not very navigable, and uh, she's leaking. The Monitor, seven knots, 11-foot draft, She's got some advantages there, and she's, of course, 171 feet in length. The Virginia, after she's cut down, is 262 feet, 9 inches. So, nevertheless, they fight in this concentric circles, you know. Th there's problems on both vessels, I have to tell you. On the monitor, the speaking trumpet from the pilot house to go into the turret, because, you see, you can't really see out of the turret. So you're supposed to get messages from the uh, captain that says fire five points to starboard. And you have these white marks inside the turret, which, you know, you turn and stop it and fire. Uh, well, the speaking trumpet doesn't move. It doesn't work because water had gotten into it. So uh, they have two runners, Daniel Toffee, um, a landlubber, and William Keeler, a landlubber, uh, who are rushing information back up to the uh, turret. And, of course, it's a little confused. Uh, and added to that, when you turn on the turret, its engine, it's got its own engine. Well, the trouble is the linkage gear had rusted because of all the salt water coming on, and they can't stop it with any um, accuracy, so they're going to fire the guns on the fly, 
okay? And basically, Green looks over the gun, and when he sees something dark, he'll fire, you know? Now, I want to tell you, the pilot house is like this, the gun's like that, so it's kind of monitor roulette. Now, on the Virginia, there's equal problems, I got to tell you. Number one, they have the wrong ammunition. You know, Brooke, brilliant Brooke, when he invented the Brooke gun, he had invented an armor-piercing shot because he said, if I'm going to build an ironclad, I'm going to sink one. Well, those armor-piercing shot are where? Not on board the Virginia because they thought they were only going to fight wooden ships. So they have explosive shell, hot shot. Well, that's not going to do them any good against another ironclad. So they're armament, or not their armament, but their, or their shells are not effective in denting in the armor, although you can look at pictures afterwards that they do dent the armor some. I think, you know, during the battle, uh, actually, Casey Jones walking down the gun deck, and he sees one of his officers, a John Randolph Eggleston, standing behind his gun, snapping his finger, and he says, what is the meaning of this, sir? Why are you not firing your gun? And Eggleston says, well, I find I can do as much damage by snapping my finger as firing my gun and powder his precious sir. Well, John Taylor Wood goes up to him and says, look, I got a plan. We know that the monitor, because of what was in the Scientific American, Erickson probably said, we don't need small arms for our crew because they're very protected by the monitor itself. So Wood says, we're going to board the vessel. I got 10 volunteers. We're going to hop on board. We're going to stuff our coats down their funnels to back up their engines. And then we're going to put it over their pilot house. And I got chloroform. I'm going to throw it in their turret. And we'll take her by boarding, you know. Well, they don't do that, <laughs> you know. But nevertheless, after an hour and a half, the monitor breaks off to bring ammunition up into her turret. Uh, then the Virginia sees that opportunity. She steams towards the Minnesota, but when she gets close in, she will run aground. Oh my gosh. The monitor comes back into action and begins pounding her for almost an hour. Part of her wooden hull is showing, but the monitor can't see what they're shooting at, so they never shoot at the wooden hull. So, somehow, Ashton Ramsey, the chief engineer of the Virginia, ties down the safety valves, and the Virginia backs off the, um, uh, the mud bank and tries to ram the monitor. Well, she'll hit her with a glancing blow, which does more damage to the Virginia. The monitor sees the Virginia starting to ride high in the water because she is... Uh, firing, using all the coal, using all her gunpowder, using all her shot. So Warden comes up with the idea, I'm going to ram her propeller, and that will disable her, and we'll be able to capture her. Well, she builds up steam, and as she comes at the fantail of the Virginia, at the very last moment, there's a steering malfunction, and the monitor veers off, and John Taylor Wood fires the stern 7-inch brook gun, hitting a shell on the pilot house that blows the top of the pilot house off, blinding Worden. Worden falls back out of the pilot house, shouting, I am killed, I am blinded. Wow, the monitor, Peter Williams, the quartermaster, who actually was from Norway and will be the only person on the monitor to receive the Medal of Honor, will veer the ship onto a shoal, and they go send for Green, who's up in the turret. They have to run down and go up into the turret and get Green. Green comes down, goes up to Warden. What do you want me to do? And Warden's laying on the bed in his cabin, utter pain, says, don't care about me, just save the Minnesota. So, 
It just so happens that Green will bring her back into action. Now, on board the Virginia, the Monitor, they think they've gotten rid of, right? So they start to go towards the um, Minnesota, but the pilots say, oh my gosh, the tide's going out. If we don't go back in, uh, we're going to be stuck and we could get in trouble. And so the Virginia decides to go back to Gosport. And the Battle of the Ironclads is over. Now, you know, it was a drawn battle. Uh, the Monitor actually saved the rest of the Union wooden fleet. However, during the first phase of the Peninsula Campaign, the Virginia will stop the Union from using the James River, which means that McClellan, when he brings his army down to Fort Monroe, will, cannot use the James River. He gets stuck on the peninsula because of the defenses of John Bankhead Magruder, and actually it will take Lincoln coming down, who will orchestrate the capture of Norfolk. Now, when Norfolk falls, Virginia does not have a base. Gee, her commander then is Josiah Tattenall, and he is 67 years old, uh, been in the U.S. Navy forever. He's the guy who invented the saying, Blood is thicker than water. At age 15, he fought at the Battle of Craney Island on 22 June 1813. Oh my gosh, this guy is great. Six foot one, cutlass expert. Well, anyway, he, uh, uh, he's mad because they didn't tell him that Norfolk was being abandoned. So he will uh, say, let's take our ship out to sea and go down to Savannah where we can be of some use. Everyone goes, Hi, we can't get there. You know, he says, let's go out and die game. So they'll capture our ship and that will give them an advantage. So he says, we'll lighten our vessel, take her up to Richmond. But they can't get her light enough. And unfortunately, at 4.30 on the morning of May 11th, 1861, the Virginia will be run aground off Craney Island and will be set ablaze. Her drooping colors will stay there and she'll burn red hot. Actually, Lincoln is up on the parapet at Fort Monroe. And when she blows up, uh, Lincoln will turn to his aide, Edward Veal, and says, you know, she had been a thorn in our side a long time, but now she's gone. Well, the Monitor will participate in the Battle of Drury's Bluff, which is a failure for the Union. The Monitor can't elevate her guns well enough. She will support the Union operations during the Peninsula Campaign. And in December, after a refit in Washington Navy Yard, she'll be ordered down to Beaufort, North Carolina. And when they get that order on Christmas Day. And Nathaniel, uh, or Samuel Dana Green, will merely say, you know, this is not an ocean-going vessel. <laughs> and uh, uh, so they'll go out to sea, towed by the Rhode Island, under the command of John Pine Bankhead. And unfortunately, she will run into a gale of, once again, 35-foot seas. She can't take it. And around 1 o'clock in the morning, the ship will go down with 16 of her crew. The Monitor was no more. 1862, neither ship survived 1862, and yet they changed naval warfare forever. They ushered in a naval revolution. No longer would we really want wooden sailing warships. Now we wanted ironclads with rifled guns that were seaworthy and able to protect harbors, to range out to the seas. Ironclads would rule the waves. They created the modern battleship. Because if you think of the modern battleship, what do you have? Rifle guns, turrets, right? They actually had rams on them for the first 30 years afterwards. And it created a new legacy in naval warfare. And it all happened there in Hampton Roads on March 8th and March 9th, 1862. And those men who served on those vessels would never forget. What's so amazing when I wrote the Monitor Boys book is that uh, the veterans, when they are getting older, 
you know, uh, they start saying they did more things than they did. You know, uh, uh, one guy, Anton Anton Baskin, who was, um, um, he deserted from the Monitor, and yet he would proclaim that he was there when it was sinking, and he helped chop the rope that, oh, it was amazing. And, uh, of course, you know, and everyone in the newspapers when they were dying, the last survivor of the Monitor, you know, died. And uh, actually half of those people claim that weren't on the Monitor. Um, and uh, uh, I, I, I just found it really kind of amazing, you know, how, and some of them, like Charles Hasker of the Virginia, my gosh, he went and served on the Hunley. He's on the second crew of the Hunley, and that's when they sank and he got out, uh, you know. And I tell you, he didn't rejoin that crew. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I think he'd seen enough technology. Um, uh, let's see, uh, uh, Selfridge, Thomas O. Selfridge, oh my gosh. He's captain of the Monitor for three days, and uh, he later will be in command. And he was on the Cumberland, so he saw the first wooden ship sunk by ironclad. Then he was in command of an ironclad. Then he gets shifted out to the Mississippi Valley, where he commands the Cairo, which is the first ironclad sunk by a torpedo or mine. Uh, then <clears throat> he's at the Red River campaign uh, when he's in command of the ironclad Osage, and he's the first ironclad to be attacked by cavalry, right? Martin Green, uh, this Confederate general, filled with rum, charged the Osage. And, and Selfridge wrote in his ship log, I just can't believe this. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, they are brave men, but they are fools. And uh, Green was killed in the action. Um, you know, the last survivor of the Virginia died in 1941. Um, Patrick, um, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember his last name. can't believe that. Um, uh, and the last monitor boy died in 19, his name was Isaac Scott, and he died in 1929. Although there was one guy that was on, said he was on board the monitor, and it big news in the New York Times when he died. He, he also was supposed to be up in uh, Alaska, the first person to plant the flag. Well, the guy was never in the U.S. Navy during the Civil War, you know, and, and I really looked, <laughs> you know. I wanted, it took me six years to write The Monitor Boys, and uh, next March I'm putting out a book called Sink Before Surrender on the crew of the Virginia, so, uh, which is going to be just like it. And uh, so I want to thank you all very much, and I want to remind every one of you all to sink before surrender. I'm here to answer some questions if y'all want. Oh my gosh. Yes, sir. Do you know anything about the U.S. Navy dropping a depth charge on the wreck of the Monitor at the first of World War II? That is a viable rumor because when you looked at the wreck, uh, there was an unusual movement to it. Uh, of course, when she sank, she turned. And they had actually jacked, the, see, there are two types of turrets that were being developed simultaneously. There's the Coles turret that had the cylinder that went down into the ship, and the Ericsson turret, which actually sat on a ring. Well, one reason why the Monitor had trouble is that they decided to lift her out of the ring, which was watertight, and pack oakum around it. 
Well, the waves hit in the water. I mean, waves hit in the oakum. It all went, and so the ship leaked like you wouldn't believe. I mean, um, so yes, that is a viable rumor. We don't have any proof. But, you know, when you see something down there at 171 feet in length, and you think about German submarines, you know, I'm going to drop my charge, you know, uh, especially if they know one's operating there. Uh, the current status of the recovery of the monitor is that uh, we have the engine and uh, the armor plate, our armor belt, uh, also uh, uh, several other engine um, devices, the turret, of course, the guns. The guns are in uh, an advanced state of, uh, and their carriages are in an advanced state of uh, preservation. Um, I would say the turret is a problem because it's eight layers of one-inch iron plate. And as a result of that, uh, the salts have gotten in between each one of those layers. So it's just going to take a whole lot longer to get those salts out of it before it can be open to the air. And that's just how it's constructed. One of the odd things about the iron plate, you know, Maryland almost left the Union, right? It's only Ben Butler who stopped yeah. it. The iron plate for the turret was made at Abbott Ironworks in Baltimore, Maryland, you know, and it's one of those great quirks, you know. Yes? Uh, I understand there actually became a class of ship called a monitor, and they built them in great quantities, and that at the time of the Spanish War, uh, mayors of cities like Boston and Norfolk and Brooklyn were convinced that the Spanish fleet was going to come over and uh, pound them into dust, and so they called upon the Navy to do something, and what the Navy did is they got some old semi-retired officers out and they've steamed these monitors up to various cities, made the local folks feel good, but they would have been useless if anything like that had actually happened. Well, actually, the U.S. Navy had, um, you know, due to the, um, you know, the uh, parsimonious nature of uh, governmental spending in the 1880s, the U.S. Navy had gone from the largest navy in the world during the Civil War to the 13th behind Chile. And so uh, basically what we did with some of the monitors, like the Puritan and the Aphrodite, um, we said we were going to refit them, but they rebuilt them as a new monitor, which gave them a longer freeboard, a casemate, and then their turrets, so that they actually were far more navigable. And they have eight of those new class monitors. But yes, indeed, they built, the North built 67 ironclads during the Civil War. Not all of them are monitor class. However, um, there are various classes of monitors. Right as soon as the Battle of Ironclad's over, Erickson gets a contract to build six more, and they're called Passaic class, which puts the pilot house on top of the, uh, the turret, so they have better communications. Uh, they actually improve the ventilation system. Because I want to tell you, when they spend the summer of 1862 in the James River off Harrison Landing, they record temperatures in the galley at 140, in the engine room 135, in the berth deck of 110, right? And flies and mosquitoes got into the bowels of the vessel. William Keeler would say, it is hot, hottest, hotter, hot. <laughs> yes? Uh, are you going to write a book about the um, 
CSS Atlanta, which ended up being captured. It was the improved version of the Virginia and ended up actually being used on the James River against the Confederates. Yeah, that, that's a great. And actually, I intended Sold to, to Haiti in 1869 and sank on the way like the Monitor yeah. did. Yeah, I tell that story in one of my books, uh, uh, History of Ironclads. Uh, but um, the Atlanta was actually probably the best Confederate ironclad. Unfortunately, she had a draft of 16 feet because she was built on the iron hull of the Scottish-built Fingal, which was a blockade runner that couldn't get out of Savannah. So they cut her down, and they put six inches of iron plate. She has four Brook guns, spar torpedo, ram. I mean, she is a hot vessel. However, she's commanded by the impetuous William Webb, and on... June 6, 1863, uh, June 16th, excuse me, uh, she comes into Wausau Sound to take on two Union monitors, the Nahant and the Weehawken. And I want to tell you, the Federals had figured out one thing, is that 11-inch Dahlgrens couldn't break the casemates of the Confederate ironclads, but maybe a 15-inch iron, or a 15-inch Dahlgren could. Well, when the Atlanta ran aground, because Webb says, we're going to go across that shoal, and they said, no, 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 we can't do that. And he says, yes, we are, and they ran aground, and so the Weehawken and the Hunt just came up, five shots, casemate breaks, Webb surrenders, and that's why they bring her into the James River. She's beautiful ironclad, and she sank en route to Haiti, and that would be a great thing to build, bring up, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, any of those... Confederate or Union ironclads made during the Civil War other than the new ironsides, I'd never take to see, or I wouldn't go in it, you know, because uh, they just weren't, they just, they hadn't figured out the stability and so many other issues. So, but you're quite right. That would be, you know, a great book to write, and I have seven under contract right now, so I'll try to fit that one in, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but it's a great, it's a fabulous story, and I have so much information about it, but... Um, um, I think it'd be good to do. So thank you for another concept. One more, one more question. The last question. That'd be a good question. <laughs> I'm not sure it's great, but uh, Erickson designed the monitor. Who designed the Virginia? Um, the Virginia was, the, the patent for the design of the Virginia goes to John Mercer Brooks. The, um, uh, naval constructor is John Luke Porter. They both claim to be the people that did the various vessels. However, I will tell you that it's really the concept of John Mercer Brooke. So I, uh, um, in my new book that's coming out, I describe the, um, the disagreements between the two men, which Catesby App Roger Jones had to really mitigate. But he liked John Mercer Brooke and thought John Luke Porter was uh, not the uh, uh, best naval constructor, um, but he's the only one the Confederates had at the very beginning. 